Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mar Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we have a very special guest, Baroness Catherine Ashton. She was the EU's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy from 2009 to 2014. She was the first female Commissioner for European Commissioner for Trade. And uh, for many people around the world, she was the face of European foreign policy. And she played uh, a crucial role in many of the big foreign policy issues that took place during that period, in particularly negotiating the the JCPOA with Iran in 2013, and also negotiating an accord between Serbia and Kosovo. And even more exciting than all that, she's just written a book about her experiences in the role. It's called And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, which is a behind-the-scenes account of her time as the EU's top diplomat. It's coming out next month. And she's going to give us a, a preview of what's in that great book. Thank you so much for joining, Kathy. It's great to be doing this with you, Mark. So as the very first HRVP, you had a front row seat on many of the big events which shaped the world between 2009 and 2014, from conflict in the Balkans to nuclear negotiations with Iran, the Arab Spring. But maybe even more resonant than anything else was the the fact that you were there when Putin annexed Crimea and we saw all of the the political turmoil in Ukraine um, on the Maidan. Can you talk a bit about um, what it was like dealing with those circumstances? Maybe we can start with the the situation in in Ukraine because it's so present in people's minds at the moment. And many people see the, the roots of the current war going back to, uh, to earlier conflicts. I mean, some people see the key moments as, as being the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. But certainly 2014 was a, was a really critical moment for shaping the world that we're, we're living through now in 2022. And, and unfortunately, on the Russian side, a lot of the personnel that were involved are the same ones that you had to deal with back in, in 2014. So... When people talk about the roots in Georgia, I describe it as Putin's desire to put wedges into countries, to stop them being the sovereign states that they want to be, to stop them being able to make their own decisions and to operate as a whole entity. Georgia, you could argue in Moldova, you have Transnistria, um, and In Ukraine, the taking of Crimea and the move into the Donbass seemed to be part of that way of operating to make sure that Ukraine could not make the decisions that it wanted to about the European Union or about NATO or indeed just being able to operate fully and wholly independently, as I said, as a sovereign state. But when we go back to 2013-14, the roots of the kind of Maidan demonstrations and the dramatic events that followed really come from what had been a seven-year negotiation, a very technical negotiation, between the EU and Ukraine in what was called an association agreement. It's like trade plus. 
it's about helping grow the economy, it's about reforming institutions, it's about a kind of European-facing approach. And the governments in Ukraine, including the, the then-president Yanukovych, have been very much in favour of that being a way in which they could improve and, and develop the country uh, in all sorts of different ways. And it was that moment when the agreement had been finalised, it had been initialed, which meant it had been completed, that was meant to be signed amongst great sort of pomp at the Vilnius summit in November 2013. And at that summit, and this is where in the book I begin the story, the president of the day, President Yanukovych, arrived to say he would not sign. And all the events then flowed from that, the demonstrations in Maidan, the eventual departure of President Yanukovych from the country, the taking of Crimea, and the move by troops into the Donbass. And that's kind of where it sat until the events of February last year. And how surprised were you on the 24th of February by what happened? I was surprised. I'd anticipated with all the troop movements that there was unquestionably going to be something happening. But I'd assumed, I guess like many people, that this was about either making certain that the boundaries that he'd established, that President Putin had established in the Donbass, that he, the territory he'd taken was going to be reinforced, or that there would be a move to take more, to make it easier to do the land bridge to Crimea and so on. I did not expect what happened next. I did not expect the attack on the whole of Ukraine. And why do you think, you know, I mean, it's obviously pure speculation for most of us, but unlike most people, you've met Vladimir Putin, you've negotiated with him, you've seen what he was like. Do you think that he's a different person now from the person he was in 2014? Do you think, what do you think's happened that, that led to this extraordinary and shocking return of, of full-scale war to the European continent? I've always seen him as being driven by a combination of history and legacy, that um, there's no question about the real anger that he and others around him felt that Ukraine should look anywhere but to Russia for its kind of political and economic future, that it was inconceivable to many of them that Ukraine should want a future that wasn't co-joined to Russia in some way. For many people, that wasn't about being part of Russia, but it was about being Russia's best friend or next-door neighbour or, or whatever. And so there was a huge amount of anger way back in 2014 that you could feel. You know, you mentioned Ukraine and it was palpable that there was serious anger. And for whatever reasons, and people speculate about lockdown and brooding in a in a cellar or whatever but for sure that combination of factors became more and more real and what you hear is that there was a sense that Ukraine was moving under President Zelensky closer and closer to Europe and further and further away from Russia and therefore it was important in their view to act that's what they would say uh, and that they did so because historically Ukraine had always been part of or close to Russia. And in terms of legacy, he did not want it to leave. He wasn't going to let it go. 
and this sense that they wish to create that the people running Ukraine are not are not real, they're not serious, they're not the people who should be there. They're somehow trying to take Ukraine in a direction that Ukraine does not wish to go and Russia is moving in to sort of rescue it. It's ludicrous, but it's it's the way that it is positioned. And for as I said, for whatever reasons, those became the kind of dominating factors. I also didn't think that they expected the reaction that they got. I think they thought Zelensky would leave or be removed. Um, I think they thought that Europe would be disunited and wouldn't be able to pull together. And I'm not sure that they thought the US was going to play the role that it has played in supporting Ukraine. So I think they made a calculated decision based on the fact that they thought it was time to do something. Uh, and the results and consequences and the horror of it all has been laid out before us. Looking forward now, I mean, your book is an amazingly vivid account of the idea of diplomacy, what you can do as a diplomat. But in Ukraine at the moment, it seems to be more about um, weapons and sanctions and brute force than, than diplomacy. How do you think this, this can end? What kind of space is there for, for diplomacy in Ukraine at the moment? Are there any lessons for people who are handling diplomacy now with Russia, which can be drawn from your time of, of dealing with Putin and, and dealing with the, the beginning of the war in Ukraine back in 2013, 2014? I chose the title and then what, because it seemed to sum up a lot of conversations that I had on a whole range of issues, that when you're thinking about the next step, you've always got to have in mind, and then what? And if you can't answer, and then what, or haven't got a clue, then the chances of success in what you're doing seem to me to be, well, potentially remote, certainly uh, less likely. Um, you always have to have diplomacy working in some way or other. And if you take the current situation uh, in Ukraine, it's not about negotiations or diplomatic activity now, but at some point there will need to be a negotiation, even if we're, if we're in a situation where Ukraine has taken back the entire country, including all of the country that was taken by Russia, including Crimea and Donbass. Let's just assume that for a moment. You've still got a lot of stuff to work out. You've got people who've been taken to Russia. You will have prisoners that you need to exchange. You will have people living in Crimea who've moved from Russia who need to go home. You will have a whole set of things to be done, reparations. People have talked about war crimes. There's masses of stuff. One of the most important things I learned was that if you don't get the process in your mind worked out, you can spend an awful lot of time arguing about the venue or the shape of the table or who sits around it. And so my advice, even in the midst of, of war and chaos, is it's important that there is some work going on to say, when we get to this point, who needs to be in the room? What are the things we have to talk about? Where are we going to go? How are we going to agree a process with the people that we're going to have to agree it with and so on and if we don't do that then you get to that moment and actually you spend an awful lot of time arguing about things that you should have sorted out or in fact in many ways don't matter but come to matter 
And do you think that what sorts of things do you think might one might envisage happening at the end of this war? Well, making Ukraine a secure sovereign state is going to be a hugely important task and a big long-term challenge. Again, a lesson from the past is we have to think longer term. Crises rarely bubble up in a short period of time. They take often decades to really come to the fore. So why we think we can solve them in six months, I don't know. You have to stick at it uh, for a very long period of time. And that's something we don't talk about too much. And it's important. So helping Ukraine to become secure and remain secure is a big job. And that's going to involve a lot of different countries. It's going to involve a lot of different processes from the UN, maybe through NATO, certainly involving Europe and the US to an extent. And then there's going to be what the relationship with Russia post the war looks like and how that's going to develop and change, depending on what happens to President Putin, depending on what happens in, in terms of Russia's engagement with the rest of the world and what that means for those countries who are most connected to Russia. On the whole construction of the country, which is a huge task ahead as well. If we think about um, uh, what's going on in the world at the moment, one of the, the kind of key challenges is is also thinking about how the EU can be part of the, the sort of solution and part of the story and, and, you know, sitting at the table rather than on the menu. And that's much more complicated now even than it was when you were HRVP because of you know, the kind of growing rise of, of competition between China and America and the shift of power in, in different places, but also because of the member states playing such an active role. I mean, you had, when it came to, to Ukraine, it was a complicated situation because France and Germany played a very important role in the Normandy format and negotiating Minsk and other member states had very different views, didn't feel particularly represented. And the EU institutions, it was also a bit unclear about where, where do you think the EU kind of fits into this? I think obviously in terms of the reconstruction of Ukraine and thinking about trade and things like that is a very obvious role for the EU and it has a lot of sovereignty. But when it comes more to the sort of diplomatic frameworks, what space do you think there is for, for the EU itself? Well, Russia rarely wanted the EU to be the player. Um, it was happy for it to be the payer, yeah. to be the one that, that put forward the resources. And one of the reasons why the EU, I think, moved to setting up its own kind of foreign policy service, although always at the behest of the member states and the commission, so it, it, it is um, a servant of the member states particularly, was to be able to pull into a single position that enabled it to play a much stronger diplomatic role. It's a huge economic power that oftentimes doesn't really understand the clout that it has. And it can use that economic power to give itself a stronger place at the table. But also because of its links across in terms of the missions, civil and military, because of its links to NATO, because of the transatlantic relationship, and also because when it comes to particularly Ukraine or indeed some of the other 
um, issues or places that are in its backyard, it ought to be able to play a much stronger diplomatic role and should. And the truth is that when the member states get together, the nature of the EU is it's quite open and transparent. You hear all the kind of angst and discussion and disagreement and so on. But it's rare in the end, especially on foreign policy issues, that it fails to reach a conclusion. In my time, we never voted. We always reached a conclusion. It took some doing sometimes because different perspectives and different ideas, but we got there. And that still seems to be pretty much the case. So, you, you know, it's about how to position that strength and the importance of that role, especially when you're sitting on the same landmass where you have this kind of crisis that's going to be really important for the future. So building that into what happens in terms of security, support, reconstruction, engagement, the potential of membership of Ukraine in the EU, the potential of membership of uh, Ukraine in NATO, all of those things, which will take a long time to come to fruition for certain but nonetheless should play a role in kind of pulling the, the way in which things are done to secure Ukraine's future in those particular directions. It's in the interests of everyone, I think, for the EU to play a big role in that. I want to spend some time talking about some of these areas where you were really, really active for a long time and had impressive achievements like Iran and in the Balkans. But maybe before we do that, I can talk a bit more about this whole idea of, of, of the EU as an international actor. I mean, there was no external action service when you were first appointed as HRVP. It was quite a messy process just getting the institutional setup created. What did you, what are the kind of main things you learned from that experience of how you can get Europeans to work together? Because you had quite, I mean, quite a challenge both with it amongst the member states who were pretty disunited on a lot of topics but then in some ways the bigger challenges were almost within the Rancuesumen itself and the dynamics between the different EU institutions but it was quite a, a kind of extraordinary thing of political alchemy to get a, a single voice out of all of these um, sort of quite fragmented centres of power. How does that work? What kind of advice do you have for people who are thinking about how you can make Europe more than the whole of the, the sum of its parts? It was an extraordinary thing to do. It's the first quasi-institution for 50 years. And the origins and, and the ideas behind it had been put together 10 years before. So by the time we got to do it, few of the people who'd been part of designing it or thinking about it were still there. I joked that when I sat around to chair my first Foreign Affairs Committee, which was then 27 because Croatia hadn't yet joined, they were all men, by the way, all the foreign ministers. Wow. I remember thinking, I bet none of them had read the Lisbon Treaty. I'd taken it through the House of Lords, so I knew it reasonably well. But why should they? And none of them really knew quite how we were going to pull this together. At that moment, neither did I. We had to design a service that would get unanimity amongst the member states, uh, would get unanimity support from the Commission and the majority of the Parliament. And there were lots of people with lots of great experience who had lots of good ideas, or perhaps some with less good ideas, but they had lots of ideas. And 
trying to sort of create something where they could see that we'd taken on board their ideas to the extent that we could, but also we create a service that was based on the merit of the people who were inside it. So appointing senior positions on merit, not just trying to look for country representation, while being mindful that you needed to balance north, south, east, west. You had to balance big, small. You had to balance the different nations so they felt part of it was really something. And, of course, we were doing that at the same time as dealing with all of the foreign policy issues. So my biggest piece of advice would be don't try and do all this at the same time. Give yourselves time, you know, design something that allows you to build the service before you start actually having to do the job. Uh, in this uh, particular context, it was trying to do both together that was especially challenging. Should we spend a bit of time talking about Iran? I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to negotiate the JCPOA and to see that come into being. It was a very, very painful process. But what happened after that is even more painful, seeing it blown up and us ending up in the... Can you talk a bit about both, you know, how you went about trying to bring life back into negotiations, which which got very stale and tired and people were very fed up with it. And you had all these kind of domestic political problems in Iran in particular, which had been making any kind of progress impossible before for, for a long time. It goes back to what I was saying really about the process of negotiation, that the positive thing of my two years spent with the Ahmadinejad regime before we even got to Rouhani was that we'd actually got a really good process going. And I used a lot of that time as the sort of chair and convener of the negotiations, amongst other things, was to get the six countries, the E3 plus 3 or the P5 plus 1, but the, the six countries, France, Germany, Britain, America, China and Russia, to a common position. Of itself, that was quite something because each wanted something different. And ultimately, there were some countries that needed a lot more from the negotiations than others. But we did get to the position where everybody was prepared to stick it out until everybody was satisfied. And that's quite rare. It's also the first time, of course, that the P5, the permanent five members of the Security Council, had ever done anything together. First time, and sadly, by the looks of it, the last at least for some time to come. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of how it was ripped up, was that we lost that capacity for the P5 to work together and to do something where they could all agree. And it was really important. So we had a good process. We'd learned how to work together. We were meeting regularly. And then we had a Rouhani government that came in on the promise of sorting out the economy. And one of the ways that was available to sort out the economy was to sort out sanctions, which meant doing a deal. Um, and so we moved quite quickly. If you think about the time frames, August we have Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, is sworn in and becomes the chief negotiator. We had the interim agreement by November. And that's because we didn't have to debate how we were going to do it. We simply had to keep going in a process that we'd already created. So process number one. And number two, I think, was being absolutely clear what we were trying to do and not do. Um, I always say to students of, uh, in negotiation, you know, number one rule, decide what it is you're trying to do and don't add. Stick to what it says on the tin or if in America, on the can. Make sure that you do that and don't try and do anything else. 
you won't get friends for the things that you haven't done, but at least you'll know that you've done what you set out to do. And one of the tragedies of what happened was the JCPOA was never meant to be the only thing we did with Iran. There were many, many issues from the region to human rights to questions about what Iran was doing that needed to be addressed. But we never got there because the big agreement on which we could move forward, what I call the boulder in the doorway, had been taken away. We could then get in and start talking other things. That was all lost. And what do you think can be done now? I mean, it's such a different world that we're in. The idea of the P5 working together in that way seems completely fanciful at the moment. You've got so much bad faith now after what happened to the JCPOA the kind of first time. Iran has now obviously managed to make huge leaps forward in its nuclear program during this period where the JCPOA has been, um, been in remission. And now added to that, you have the kind of brutal crackdown of the Iranian regime on its own people, which makes the idea of negotiating with Iran feel very kind of awkward and queasy to, 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 to many democratic countries. It's a pretty, it's a pretty scary situation that, that we have there. Do, what, what do you think can be done now? Well, you rarely negotiate with your friends anyway. Yeah. So almost by definition, any negotiation you're doing are going to be with people that you'd rather not. And certainly in circumstances where there are often many other things going on that you don't uh, approve of minimally or absolutely detest them for, at another so that's an inevitable part of negotiation it's not a reason not to negotiate on something as important as preventing nuclear weapons in that region and the second thing is of course that this particular regime will use the demonstrations as yet another reason not to talk to in quotes the west argue that the west is stirring up trouble and so on so the hardliners the people who benefit from not moving forward will use that and continue to use that. And the kind of loss of the economic model that would have taken them closer to Europe is something that they actually want to do and appreciate that, that this helps them kind of move into that, into that area and move away from doing anything uh, with the West. One of the problems, though, in kind of resuscitating the JCPOA was always that the Iranians could play the card that said look, we got a, a huge amount of economic benefit out of the JCPOA. That's what we, we, we did this agreement for and allowed you to do all this in, intrusive, you know, watching over us and so on. But actually no businesses are going to come to Iran if every two years the next president's going to rip it up or Congress is going to argue against it. So what guarantees can you give us? And of course, the Americans can't give guarantees unless they make this some kind of treaty which is a whole set of other questions about getting that through Congress and how it would be done and so on and so forth, which are, are very, very complicated. Without that, then no president can guarantee that it would remain. And so they've always got that card to play. It's actually important to remind Iran of all the other reasons why it's not a good idea for them to be a nuclear weapon state, why it makes the region more dangerous, why it makes them potentially uh, more challenged by others who will want to stop that program and so on and so forth but I think I think in this particular climate with this particular regime those arguments and conversations are just being lost 
You mentioned the US. I mean, I think a lot of people remember the extraordinary relationship you built with Hillary Clinton and uh, lots of joint trips together and, and also taking the transatlantic relationship into, into new areas. You were the first person who negotiated kind of joint framework on thinking about Asia Pacific and a lot of topics which are now dominating the news at the moment started when through the cooperation you had with Hillary Clinton. But obviously Trump came a couple of years after after he left and it's been a roller coaster ride, transatlantic relations. How do you think about the transatlantic relationship now? It looks a bit more like it, it did probably when you were HRVP <laughs> in the post-2016 framework. But what do you think the long-term future of, of the West is? It's a really important relationship. But, you know, I, I did hope that when we had President Trump, that it would, in a sense, kind of stir Europe into being more self-reliant and resilient in terms of what it could do. And I think it did some of that. You could hear the noises coming out of not just the European Union, but Europe more generally, because that does include us, that we shouldn't just be looking constantly across the Atlantic. Indeed, one of the reasons I wanted to do something around the Western Balkans, and that led to the Serbia-Kosovo Agreement, was to show that Europe was capable of leading in its own backyard and actually trying to resolve problems using the powers and the abilities that it had, whether that was the pull of EU membership or simply providing a safe space for people to be able to come and have those conversations in Brussels. Really important. So the transatlantic relationship should remain key and cornerstone to a lot of the ways in which we approach crises together. But I hope that as Europe strengthens, and becomes more capable of acting as a player, that it also recognises that it must take the responsibility for resolving issues itself. Because we don't know who will be the next president, or the one after that, or the one after that. What we do know is that things can change and become more difficult. And what we do know is to expect the unexpected, just as we had the largely unexpected in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's so much I'd like to talk to you about. We're running out of time, but I think it, it would be a bit strange if I didn't ask you about Britain because, you know, you were a European commissioner, you were the, the HRVP for the EU. You wouldn't be able to do that today, given Brexit. How do you see Britain fitting into European foreign policy in the future? What do you think the kind of long-term uh, relationship which the, the UK could hope to enjoy with other European countries on foreign policy issues being? I said in my book, actually, that as a woman of my generation, I'm used to being the first to do things. <laughs> I was the first woman that Britain ever sent to the European Commission, and I'm apparently the last, at least for now. Um, and I'm not used to being the last, so it's a kind of first to be the last. Um, but I see that... As we kind of work out what the relationship with Europe should be and however close that needs to get, it's going to be really important to get this right on foreign policy and security policy and making sure that there are ways in which we interact with Europe properly are really important. We have lost the ability to put our issues on the agenda and have 27 other countries and voices and the EU machinery help and support those priorities as well. 
we're not amplifying our voice and we need to find new ways of doing that. You can argue we could do it through NATO, but that's a military alliance. There are lots and lots of things that you do in foreign policy that are nothing to do with the military alliance. They're to do with economic strength, with diplomacy, with relationships, with priorities, as I've said, for all of the countries working together. We have to find a way to, if we can't be inside the door, be just outside the door and actually being able to talk. And I think there is an appetite for that. I think there always was a view in Brussels that even if we did leave, that we would continue to work together. And a surprise that governments of the day, as it were, were not interested in keeping that foreign and security uh, collaboration. So I hope we'll move back to that at a minimum and find ways to have a stronger and deeper relationship in the future. Not only is it good for us, it's good for Europe. It's also what, when you look across the Atlantic, what the Americans want us to do too. It supports what their objectives are in terms of creating a stronger Europe so that Europe is more able to do the things that it should be doing in its own area, in its own, as I've said, backyard. Well, I hope you're right. Unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time for discussion on this book. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is the, the way that we always end the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. I definitely want to recommend Kathy's book and then what Inside Stories of, of 21st Century Diplomacy, which comes out on February the 2nd and will be available, I imagine, in all good bookshops. Kathy, are there any books which are on your bookshelf at the moment? There are always books on my bookshelf. I think um, in terms of fiction, the one that I thought was was uh, really interesting was Ken Follett's book, Never, because that talks about how you can end up almost by accident in a kind of uh, terrible situation. I won't give it away, but it's, it's fascinating because it's a foreign policy book but written as a novel. And those are always interesting for those of us who spend our lives kind of engaged with that. Um, and I know that Simon MacDonald, who was the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, has brought out a book looking at, his, through his, in his terms, the life of diplomacy, which uh, is also a great read. Great. Fantastic. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing on your social media feed or ours. But above all, hopefully by subscribing to the podcast. And if you want to give us a good review and a five-star rating, we certainly won't complain. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, including Kathy's book on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast. And I would also encourage you to check out our new special podcast series on China, Inside China, which was launched on our ECFR On Air podcast platform. But for now, from Kathy Ashton and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode was Mark.